0: There's no place for religion in politics, and there's no place for politics in religion. Well, we hear that quite often, don't we? But how much of it is truth? Today, we'll discover how they might just fit together. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. Dr. Zukerin is a popular speaker, author, and scholar dealing with today's most pressing spiritual issues. And recently, Pat hosted a conference in Hawaii addressing these cutting-edge topics. Today, we'll hear one of the featured speakers, Kirby Anderson. Kirby is a nationally syndicated talk show host who is an expert on contemporary culture, the media, and politics, among other things. What you're about to hear may well answer some of the biggest questions you have on the integration of politics and religion. And by the way, we have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. Pat Zuckerman's articles, books, audio from past shows, debates, and much more available right now for download at evidenceandanswers.org and answers.org resources on hundreds of topics just go to evidence and and now dr Zuckerman presents kirby anderson on politics and religion
1: some of us might have grown up in a home where we were told there are two things we couldn't talk about what were those politics and religion i'm gonna do both so i'm in real trouble aren't i but what I want to try to do is help us think about what our citizenship is, because I suggest that we have a dual citizenship. Certainly our citizenship is in heaven, and we recognize that that is our ultimate home. But you've maybe heard the phrase sometimes, people that are so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good. You know, So there is a sense in which certainly we do recognize that we are citizens of heaven. But you know what? We're also citizens of the earth. And Jesus told us that uh, we have been sent into the world, and we are to be in the world but not of the world. And so sometimes it's important for us when we get into this area of what is our Christian responsibility of government to think through some of those issues. And what we can see is in Romans 13, we see immediately that government isn't something we've come up with. Government is something that God has ordained. It struck me that when I was at Georgetown University taking a class or two in political theory, that if I took seriously a Christian view of government, just what was actually said in the Bible alone, I could eliminate almost all the political theories we were studying because most of them assumed that government was established by human beings. Most of them assume that human beings are basically good. Most, well, we certainly can't agree with that. Most of them uh, were either utopian views or things like that. And so we sometimes just need to come back to the basics. And in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we see all of this. But in particular, it tells us that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the first principle we could put in the margin there is we are to obey government. And by doing that, we recognize that we do so because we recognize that government was instituted by God. Now, is there never a time when we would ever disobey government? No, obviously. We have to recognize that if government were to exceed its authority, then we would. Look at the book of Daniel as a good example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were told to what? Bow down. Could they do so? No, they could not do so. Or even before that, uh, they were told to eat. Um, first of all, meat sacrificed to idol probably wasn't kosher as well, and so they worked out a different situation. Another one was about prayer. We have a good examples uh, in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, Acts 5.29, we obey God rather than men. But I think primarily the fun- function here and the focus here is for us to obey government. We also recognize that when we do so, government requires us to render certain duties to them. Render all to whom is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So I think first of all, we should obey those in government. A second aspect of that, a subset, is I think if any Christian Christians should be good citizens. You know, I run into Christians sometimes and say, well, I don't know if I need to vote. I don't know if I need to serve on jury duty. I don't need, you know, this kind of mindset. But if anything, I think we should, as Christians, be model citizens, because after all, we are to render to government what it actually has required of us. We see also in 1 Peter 2 this idea, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So certainly we should obey those in government. But we also see in First Timothy 2 that we should not only obey those in government, we should also pray for those in government. First of all, then, I urge that in treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, when God calls for us, and here the Bible calls for us to pray for those in authority, The obvious question is, who is in authority over you? Well, I would suggest to you that at the very least, you should pray for, be praying for, your key 16. Who would those people be? Well, first of all, an individual in authority over you is the president. Then you have nine members of the Supreme Court. You have two senators here in Hawaii, one representative, you have a governor, you have a state senator, and you have a state representative. And so you have at least 16 people who are directly in authority over you. What does God say that we should do? We should pray for those individuals. Now, if you want to add into that mayor, city council, whoever else, I understand that. But these certainly are the key 16. So I think we can honestly say that as we look at some of these civic duties that we have, we certainly should obey those in authority. Second of all, we should pray for those in authority. And I think by implication we should also vote for those in authority. It's during an election year, I mentioned even last night, the possibility that in this next election you could elect or defeat nationwide nearly a quarter of a million people running for office. From state senators and state representatives to governors to senators to uh, members of the House of Representatives and much, much more. So certainly obey those in authority, pray for those in authority and vote for those in authority. What I want to try to do for just a few minutes is kind of look at how Christians in the past have addressed this issue. What has been the role of pastors and churches in American history? Because sometimes we have become cut off from that. And sometimes we say, well, you know, pastor really shouldn't address any of these social issues. Pastors really shouldn't deal with anything having to do with government or politics. And so I want to try to answer that question for just a few minutes. First of all, you might ask yourself, where did these ideas come In 1776, we have a situation in which those individuals, the patriots, decided that they would actually disengage these 13 colonies from Great Britain. And in the midst of that, they declared their independence. And so they drafted the Declaration of Independence in 1776. But you know, after they formed this new nation, they had the Articles of Confederation. It didn't work very well, and so they decided to really draft a constitution. If you've ever studied American political theories, I have, you have to say, most of these ideas look like they just spring out of nowhere. Because all of a sudden, they have all sorts of concepts in the Constitution that were found nowhere else. First of all, just the fact that you had a written Constitution was rather rare. And we have the same Constitution. Italy's had almost a half a dozen. France has had a few, almost a half a dozen as well. I mean, we've had all sorts of changes in government during that period of time, but our Constitution has struck pretty well. And so a number of years ago, one of my major professors at Georgetown University, working with professors at the University of Houston and Louisiana State, LSU, they began to say, where did these ideas come from? And so they began to look at all the writings during the founding era, 15,000 different writings during the founding era.
0: And they found
1: that there were about 3,000 citations as they were writing back and forth to each other, they were writing the Federalist Papers, the notes of the Constitutional (coughs) Convention, and all the rest. And as they counted those citations, they found that one particular document showed up time and time again. The Bible was quoted 34% of the time. There was no close second. You you go all the way down to Locke and Montesquieu and others. And so it's interesting that the Constitution that we have today, in large part, came from Bible quotes and Bible references. This book, The Origins of American Constitutionalism, gives that documentation. But that's only half of it. When they went back, they noticed something else. Yes, indeed, the writers quoted from the Bible 34% of the time, but most of those quotes, about three-fourths of all those quotes, came from sermons delivered by pastors during the 18th century. And this is one of the books on my shelf, Political Sermons of the American Founding Europe. Let's put it in perspective. The pastors would preach their sermons in the 18th century, then they didn't have CDs or cassette tapes, they would take those sermons and they would reprint those sermons, and those sermons were then reprinted and distributed all over the colonial era. And other people reading those would then quote from those, and those ideas ultimately made their way into the United States Constitution. So it was the preachers of the 18th century that basically contributed to the ideas that were found in the United States Constitution. Is that kind of amazing? Think about this in a different way. Imagine we would want to write a constitution today. Would you imagine that the messages given by pastors in the pulpits would be used to construct that constitution? I see most of you shaking your head no. For two reasons. Reason number one is the political class almost doesn't care what pastors have to say, right? But number two, a lot of pastors, frankly, don't address these issues. But if you go back and look at these sermons, they're talking about justice, justice, equal representation, we're talking about civil disobedience, uh, righteousness, and much more. And so it was the pastors of that day that addressed those issues. As a matter of fact, one of the things that was done quite routinely, and when Suzanne and I lived in Connecticut when I was Yale, they would oftentimes even still keep that tradition during election day. That was to deliver what were called election sermons. Pastors would preach an election sermon the Sunday before an election to guide their congregation on biblical principles to take with them as they would vote. This is a particular sermon that was given by an individual who was preached before John Hancock, who at that time was the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Lieutenant Governor was Samuel Adams, is one of those many messages. And as you would look at this, you would get an idea of how pastors saw it as their role to educate not only their congregation, but the community at large on how to think biblically about the social and moral issues of the day. This is one sermon of many that I've collected over the years. In the past centuries, pastors would preach sermons after a natural disaster. What about Katrina? What about the earthquake in Haiti? What is God maybe trying to teach us through this fire, through this flood, through this tornado? And so pastors recognized it was their responsibility to educate their congregation and to help them think biblically, to develop a Christian worldview about what was taking place around them. What was the role of pastors when it came to social ills? Well, they would speak against all sorts of social evils. If you go back and look at the abolition movement, the temperance movement, the child labor movement, uh, the suffrage movement, uh, certainly even later, uh, some of the civil rights movement, you would see that Christians were involved in so many different aspects of addressing these issues. And so pastors today that say, well, you know, I can't really address that issue, They're not standing in the tradition of what has existed in the 18th and 19th and even the early part of the 20th century. They've developed a very different, almost segmented, truncated view of the gospel. Now, you might say, okay, well, this does raise some legal issues, doesn't it? I mean, after all, we recognize that pastors have been limited somewhat. And I think it is important to, again, remind ourselves that that didn't always exist, But churches, and in particular pastors, began to lose their ability, their legal right to address candidates and political issues back in 1954. What happened is then-Senator Lyndon Johnson was running for re-election. You've got to understand that before that, in 1948, he won in what would be called a contested election. There were a number of what you might call voter irregularities. Uh, In one particular county, they found that everybody who voted in that county voted in perfect alphabetical order, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, A while back, uh, when he was still alive, I picked up William F. Buckley at the airport and took him to a speaking engagement, and he started that night, and he says, well, it's fun to be back in Texas. Uh, The last time I was in Texas, I learned something I didn't know before, and that is I knew that my great uncle was a sheriff in uh, West Texas and I knew that he had been a sheriff there for many years. But what I learned when I was here last time is six years after he died, he voted for Lyndon Johnson in 1948. (laughs) Well, this had been a contested election, and so now in 1954, those who felt that they had been wronged began through non-profit organizations to challenge Lyndon Johnson. So Lyndon Johnson, as the senator, inserted language in the IRS code that prohibited nonprofit organizations from endorsing or opposing candidates. And that particular language has stayed in the bill, even though there are many members of Congress that have been trying to change that. So when we talk about the legal issues, there are a few things that churches may not do when we talk about politics. Uh, When we spoke to the pastors Friday morning, uh, one of the questions came up is, what can churches do and what can churches not do? Well, there are two things that churches cannot do. That is, a church as a body, as a 501c3 organization, cannot endorse or oppose a particular candidate. Now, the individual pastor can do so. And I noticed on Friday, Waxer stood up and endorsed a candidate right there as the pastor, but not as the church. Uh, Then also, churches may not contribute to or raise money for a candidate, In other words, a particular candidate. They could theoretically make it available to both candidates if they wanted to raise money or do a fundraiser, but most churches, of course, don't do that anyway. But that really brings us back to the fact that churches really have a tremendous amount of freedom, even with that legal restriction that Lyndon Johnson established. For example, churches may register their members as voters. And this takes place in 49 states. Which state does it not take place in? There is a law in the state of Florida that says you cannot register anyone to vote on Sunday. Guess who passed that law? So there is no way that you can register voters in a church, at least on Sunday, but they can do it other days, or they can hand them a voter registration card, perhaps, and they can do it at another time. Churches can pass out voter registration cards, voters' guides that might give an analysis of how a particular candidate or series of candidates actually have um, voted on particular key elections. They can invite all the candidates in a race to speak at the church or some church function. If one candidate chooses not to come, that's still quite legal. And they certainly, and this is the point I would make to the pastors, they can't speak directly about specific issues in legislation, whether it's abortion or marriage or things of that nature. Uh, There's a lot more that they can do, but I think that just gives you an idea of the freedom that they have. Now, are there any issues that pastors or churches might want to address? I put some pictures up there of a few. I mean, we live in a contentious time, and if we do not educate members of our congregation about how to think about things like abortion or stem cell research or same-sex marriage or church-state issues or legal or judicial decisions, who is going to? And so I think there is a real need to do that education. I'm not talking about turning a church into a 501c3 organization that is politically active or a 501c4 or a PAC or anything like that, but I am saying that in the tradition of churches in the past, we do need to educate the body of Christ about the issues before us. Well, that brings us back to the vote. You know, I mentioned a minute ago we should obey those in authority, we should pray for those in authority, we should vote for those in authority. What about the stewardship of the vote? Have Christians exercised the stewardship of the vote or have they buried their talent? What do you think? I think you know where we're going with this. Let's first of all talk about a close election or two. I have over the years collected all sorts of interesting elections, but you will probably at least can think back 10 years ago to the one of the closest elections in American history, the 2000 election. Do you remember this one? The president of the United States was elected essentially by 527 votes in the state of Florida. Could it be any closer than that? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, if you change votes in the number of key precincts, 5,381 votes in four different states, it could have resulted in a 269-269 tie. We have never had a presidential election closer than that. But what most people forget is it also ended up in a 50-50 tie in the United States Senate. We never had such a close election in the United States Senate. And it continued for a short period of time until one day Senator Jeffords said, oh, you know what, I'm not a Republican, I'm an independent. And that then changed it to a 50-49-1 since he caucused with the Democrats It gave authority than to Harry Reid. What you don't realize is, not only did you have a close presidential election, you had close senatorial elections, you also had a very close election for the House of Representatives. A collective shift of 5,493 votes in five districts would have put the Democrats in charge and Dick Kephart would have been the Speaker of the House. Those are pretty close elections. I found closer ones. One of the people I work with occasionally on Moody Broadcasting is a woman by the name of Penny Pullen. When Penny Pullen ran for re-election in a primary, They um, had a contested election. She represents Chicago. And they had a few of those, what they call voter irregularities. And so they had to go back and sort out the votes. And when they finished doing the count and throwing out those which were not legitimate votes, it was a perfect tie. 5,400 and something to 5,400 and something. An absolute, complete tie. The closest election in American history. What do you do when you have a perfect tie? They came up with the idea, they went into the judge's office, they flipped a coin, she lost. Here's the rest of the story. She went back to her church that Sunday and people came up and said, oh, Penny, if I'd known it was going to be so close, I would have voted for you. (laughs) She began to hear stories of people that got off work late, didn't bother to vote. Other people that were out of town didn't get an absentee ballot. She counted 36 different votes. If just one of those people had voted, she would still be serving in the legislature in Illinois. Is that a close vote? Does that maybe even give you a little bit of an illustration of what we have with the Christian vote? Let's think about this for a minute. George Barna says that we have 59 million Christian voters, 59 million born-again Christians. Now, I'm not going to judge their spiritual condition, only God can separate sheep and goats, you know, but I think George Barna does a pretty good job. He asks them a couple of questions, and they look born-again, so that's his number. (laughs) If you accept that number, you will be disturbed by the rest. If you use that criteria, only 15 million born-again Christians voted in the 2000 election. 19 million voted in the 2004 election. And a little over 20 million, don't get into the specifics, voted in the most recent election. You've got to be thinking, whoa, we have a lot of people that could have voted that didn't. Well, part of the problem is, is that some of the people that could have voted didn't. But the other problem is 24 million born-again Christians are not even registered to vote. Does that bother you a little bit? Let's think about it football game, baseball game, basketball game. We watched one of those out here the other night. Just imagine if, you know, one side has just enough people to put on the field. Let's say we watch the kids play basketball and you only have five kids on one team and because the others were somehow disqualified and you got 15 kids on the other team and they're battling until the fourth quarter here and it's pretty much still a tie game And all of a sudden, the other kids that have been disqualified, the teachers say, you know what? They're not disqualified. We made a mistake. They can actually play. So they suit up real quickly, and now you have 15 on one team and 15 on the other, but these are fresh people that come into the game. Who wins? Of course. Or imagine you had all these kids that were sitting on the bench. They could play, but they didn't go until the fourth quarter. Who wins? This is kind of what we have right now. People say, there is no way that Christians can have an impact in elections. If individuals that are not registered to vote, register to vote and then people who are registered to vote go out and vote intelligently, they will begin to change the nature of elections in American history. So part of that goes back to political education. One last thing of what is happening in our country right now, and it has to do with what is called the fertility gap. It's a little bit complex. I know it's late in the afternoon, we've had lunch. See if you can stay with me, because I think I will give you a sense of hope of where this country may be going, and at the same time explain why there has been such a push in the last year to pass legislation as fast as we pass it possibly can. Have you noticed this at all? There has been a push like I've never seen before. Now, as a talk show host, I love it. I never have to think about what we're going to talk about because these issues have been coming so fast and so furious, and everybody says, we've got to pass it now, we've got to pass it now. What is behind all of this? And both liberals and conservatives have seen this. So it's not like this isn't well-known. Arthur Brooks on the conservative side, Philip Longman on the progressive side, have noticed it as something very interesting. That is, if you picked 100 unrelated politically liberal adults, you would find that among them they had 147 children. If you picked 100 conservatives, you would find they had 208 children. This turns out to be a fertility gap of 41%. Now, what is happening is this. We're recognizing that conservative homes are producing more kids than liberal homes. Now, the reality is, is that some kids grow up in a conservative home and then become liberal. Some kids grow up in a liberal home and become conservative. But the 80-20 rule works pretty well. About 80% of the time, if you grew up in a conservative home, you're going to probably vote pretty conservative. About 80% of the time, if you grew up in a liberal progressive home, you're going to vote in that way. By the way, this also works in a different study with Christians. Because if you think the fertility gap between conservatives and liberals is great... The gap between conservatives, uh, Christians, and secularists is off the charts. Or haven't you noticed in your uh, child care right now? We are producing more individuals that tend to be conservative on these social and moral issues. And we tend to produce more and more Christians. And we recognize that some, you know, change. But if you take that and play that out, you begin to see these implications. Arthur Brooks, American Enterprise Institute, said, let's just play this out over the next few elections, and here's what happens. If you look at Ohio, Ohio is a perfect purple state, neither red nor blue, it switches back and forth. It's almost politically, politically divided 50-50. But if you play this out and recognize, again, all the trends, they have to do with voter registration, they have to do with whether or not young people are more likely to vote, and they're not, than older people and all that. But you run the demographics, I'm giving you just the answer. They say that this 50-50 state in Ohio, by the next presidential election, will then swing 54% conservative, 46% liberal. That purple state becomes a red state. Does That make sense? Because there is this wave of those young people who tend to be more conservative on many issues. Not all, I'm not you know, saying that on some issues they aren't. But that fertility gap has caused a lot of people, not only in the conservative movement, but We have to really recognize this wave is coming. We only have a limited amount of time to get our agenda enacted. Does that look at all like what you've seen over the last, say, 14 months? It does to me. Okay, let's take a truly blue state. I was born in California, right? California right now tilts in favor of liberals 55% to 45%. There are a few Republicans, Arnold Schwarzenegger being one, but most of the people that are elected, United States Senate, the uh, Assembly, California Senate, Democrat. But by the year 2020, it'll take a little longer. It will be conservative by 54% to 46%. You begin to see push to maybe get more immigrants in here, why to change some of the laws, why there's even a harder push against Christianity by the new atheists. When you begin to understand that, you can begin to see that all of that is having an impact.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence & Answers. It's our hope that you've gotten a lot of good information from this program and we'd like to hear from you. Go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org and give us your feedback. Browse our resources while you're there. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism and no matter your spiritual background, you'll find fascinating topics and an intelligent presentation of the claims of Christ. And we would also ask that you support us financially. Your gifts help keep this program on the air. Just click the donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. And again, we would really appreciate your vote of confidence. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat zukarin